Hey, Tourpreneurs, it's Mitch Bach. And just a quick note before we begin today's episode, Tourpreneur is currently sponsored by Google. We're thankful for their support of our community, and we are offering with them a completely free course helping you unlock the power and potential of Google's Things to Do program, which is specifically helping tour operators add their tours to Google in new ways that gives you new exposure and more direct bookings. To learn more, go to tourpreneur.com slash Google. And as always, show notes, more resources, links to our newsletter, our business coaching community, and so much more are available on tourpreneur.com. Now to the episode. Hello, Tourpreneur community, and I'm very happy today to be bringing you another keynote podcast with a well-known guy around the world in innovation, Mark Mackey. Today's guest is Mark Mackey, and Mark is an innovation expert. Mark's originally from Belgium, but we're not going to hold that against him. Today, he lives in Barcelona, one of my favorite cities, and a city that we have many members of our community in, and also we have a lot more spread about Spain and Europe as well. So Mark's based in Barcelona. He's an innovation expert, as I mentioned. He's also a corporate trainer, an advisor, a coach, a speaker, gets employed all around the world, and also an author. It's known for demystifying technology and simplifying it down uh, so the normal person can use technology. However, one of the main reasons I've invited Mark along today is what she doesn't really talk about, but he has a history as a tour operator and not a short history. He was one of the first tour operators to base himself in China, where he ran his own business. He was a GM and his own business in Mandarin Journeys. Uh, prior to that, he worked for companies like Imaginative travel, also travel this. So I think in total, Mark, you had about 12 to 15 years as a tour operator? Uh, yeah, I mean, my, my career in, in travel spans about a solid 15 years. Uh, first, I started off uh, as, a, as a guide, effectively. Uh, so, so I know that grassroots stuff very well. I was a guide in in rural China, of all places. So, you know, I, I became a guide on a, on a, a basically, long story short, maybe as a, as a short introduction to who I am and why I might be sitting here, aside from the, the innovation and tech aspect, is uh, I am Belgian. I do hope people don't hold that against me, even if I do myself. No, I don't. It's a, it's a lovely little country, and I was doing well there. I had a, a, a burgeoning career in, in media and advertising and all that. I was doing well, but I wasn't really content with the... The Belgian trajectory, which is which is fairly predictable, let's call that. And I wanted adventure, as as a lot of people who listen to this or view this will probably recognize. Uh, all of us have that same gene, I presume. I wanted adventure, and I, I went on a one-way ticket to uh, to Hong Kong and, and booked an, a train into the countryside and started working for a British company um, called Imaginative Traveler, and that was full-on adventure tours in China, every corner of China, really sort of grassroots, uh, you know, trekking on the Great Wall and trips to Tibet and into the Southwest of China and, you know, playing with pandas in, in Sichuan province, all that stuff. So I did that for a solid two and a half years, including six months in Egypt, uh, a similar thing. And on the heels of that, I started realizing, I did a short stint in London after that for a, a, a British tour operator that's still in existence kind of set up their China department. They wanted to get into, into the Far East as well. And then uh, I, I wanted to leave again. Even London was, it was too, too comfortable and safe for me. So I went back to China. And long story short, I, I founded Mandarin Journeys because I realized there was a market for doing tailor, real tailor-made trips into the heartland of China because much of it was being sold back then was all the same giant Chinese DMCs selling the same product to the foreign tour operators who will then market it to the to mass market and it was all the same beijing yangtze river you know a day in shanghai quick trip to guilin and end in hong kong that sort of thing which was adventurous enough for, for many people but you know there was this growing mass of people uh, driven a lot of it by, by the early exploits of g adventures right 
it was sort of coming up at the same time where it was all about real adventure. And so I started Mandarin Journeys trying to tap into that, but I went straight up market. I realized very quickly that while it's great fun to do the grassroots stuff and the, you know, the hiking and the trekking yourself as a guide when you're being paid for it, it's a whole other ball game when you have to uh, organize that and make money off it because obviously the margins are very different. So I went really up market, but retaining that sort of spirit of it's tailor-made, but it's not luxury in the conventional sense. We're still going to go off-road, off-piste, whatever you want to call it, and look for adventure, but we're just going to do it in a tailor-made kind of high-end way, which means everything is really taken care of. And so that's what I did for, for 10 years, and I, I did pretty well with that. Yeah, so Mandarin Journeys was my long stint in, in, in the travel industry. Fantastic. So just for our audience here of tourpreneurs, something Mark mentioned there, which is nothing to do with, well, maybe it's something to do with innovation, is he went up market. Now, this is just, it's not about this podcast, just a feeling. Uh, some of you have seen me comment on the group about this. We're about to go into a really challenging financial time around the world. And going up market is a strategy that can make you survive over quite tough times that are coming, I believe. Up market, higher margin, maybe less customers. But it is a good business strategy in the current situation to go up market. Anyway, on to innovation. So in today's world, Matt, innovation probably matters more than it ever has. And I say that in a bigger picture rather than just tourism and tour operators. There's a lot happening in the world, good and bad. And the only way we seem to be going to be getting out of all of these issues is by being smart and, and by innovating. However, you say the word innovation to a room of 10 small tour operators, everybody will have a different opinion on what it is. So what is innovation? Especially what is innovation regards tourism? Yeah, so it's, a, it's obviously a very good and relevant question because it is driving so much uh, renewal in every industry. Uh, innovation is the antidote to, to volatility, really. And that's what we're seeing in the world. And that's not going to end as we're all figuring out right we just come out of covid or we haven't really it's a different story uh there might be around five six seven and eight of this whole thing but at the same time everything else is kicking off right we have ukraine we have the heat waves we have geopolitical things now we're standing you know at the, at the precipice of potentially a global recession so this stuff is not going to end so innovation is the antidote what i would say is that i think the most important message to get across from the very get-go every single time which I go preaching around the world, is when you when you mention the word innovation, for a lot of people, their eyes glaze over because they think you're immediately going to be speaking about technology, right? That happens all the time. You mention the word innovation and people think, oh, here we go, tech, <laughs> you know? And unless you are a bit of a, a tech head and a little bit of a nerd uh, like, like myself, like many of my colleagues in, in, who've been you know, sort of closet nerds for the best part of their lives. I was a, I, I, I remained a nerd even when I was running a tour operator company. I, I sort of relentlessly always integrated new technology in my business. But what I want to get across is that innovation is not primarily about technology. It never has been. We've been innovating for, for, for 10,000 years, right? For more than that, but 10,000 years, roughly since the Neolithic, the early days, 10,000 years ago, when the first tribes settled around the Eastern Mediterranean in the beginning of the Neolithic period, we've been innovating relentlessly. And most of that was not about technology, at least not in the way that we know technology today. When we think about tech, we sort of equivocate that to digital, right? Tech is digital now. And because those two have been ascending in parallel, the rise of technology has sort of gone with with the rise in gdp and the rise in innovation so now we equate technology and innovation and that's the first thing we have to really dispel because if you don't do that if you don't really hammer it into people that innovation is not primarily about technology then as soon as you mention the need for innovation you know 75 percent of people sort of tune out because they go well i'm not into tech so there you go so i'm not going to innovate because i'm just not into tech which is a completely wrong way of thinking because you don't need tech primarily to be innovative. You can do that in a number of ways that will always touch on technology in some way, 
are very have very little to do in many cases with you know a deep dive into the inner workings of, of modern tech. Like the best innovations leverage the simplest tech, right? They they sort of there's an inverse relation between the complexity of the technology and the quality of the innovation almost. Right? The less you can use, the, the more you can stay away from tech, the more lasting your innovation will be. In so for, for tour operators leading on for that, innovation can be something as simple as tweaking something in marketing, creating a new distribution channel, which could be offline or online. It could be a new product. It could be a new category. So let's get some examples. If I think back to when I started tour operating, there was no such thing as a food tour. It did not exist. No one in the world was selling a dedicated food tour. Now there's a whole massive sector and worth hundreds of millions based around food tours. So innovation could be creating a new category, could be creating a new product, a new experience, could be diff could be tweaking the things you already have. Yeah, it, it, it's mostly about reinventing what you're doing to get a better marketable and sellable results. That's what innovation is. That innovation is not the act of doing something new. It's not, it doesn't count as, a, as an innovation until it is marketable and profitable effectively. We're still in this capitalist system. And within that, we have to live with the reality that that's how we have to construct our businesses. And we can be ethical within those constraints. We can be profitable at the same time within those constraints. But innovation is about, you know, just thinking differently as the old Apple uh, creed went. And so, for example, I was thinking before this call about something that, that I would do now if I were back in China right now. It was I could have done this back then, to be honest, but it's slightly easier now in, in the sense that you could probably do this within the span of an hour. I think if you're running a city tour at the moment, like I'm in Barcelona, you can imagine the place is flooded again. You know, we're, we're, we're close to seeing, you know, local spray painting on the wall again. You know, tourists get out. It's that busy. You know, it's, it's, so we're back to that. But at the moment, if, if you're not leveraging all those eyeballs, then to me, you're leaving innovation potential on the table. Like, for example, if you're running a food tour, and in this day and age, after two and a half years of something like QR codes being embedded in the collective conscience, everyone now is comfortable with QR codes. They never had a full breakthrough before COVID. Thanks to COVID, QR codes are now an accepted retained technology so if you're not walking around with a giant qr code on your back as a, as a tour leader you, you're missing out because what can you do for example what would i do is i would have a giant qr code and below that i would say just the word curious with a question mark or curious about food question mark pointed this guaranteed amongst the thousands of people it's a numbers game there will be people who just point a camera at your qr code what you do then is you simply link that QR code to a simple page, not, nothing convoluted, nothing complex, a simple page or even a YouTube video of yourself or your colleagues in a 30-second clip saying like, hey, we are, we are Barcelona food tours. Here's a shot of the amazing food that we do. Uh, and you'll come and join us on the next one. And if you scan this QR code, you get a 5% discount. And so that's innovation. Right? There, was, there is technology involved, but, that, but that's secondary. It's a building block. It's a means to an end. And so if you're not doing things like that, you're just leaving a lot of eyeballs, a lot of money on the table. And something simple like that touches on all the, the aspects of innovation that, that, that are important, which is experimentation. You know, just to, there's, no, there's nothing holding you back from doing something like that as a grassroots experiment. Even if you are a single food tour individual or just two people running a local tour, you go to a local print shop, right? You take a white shirt from here, the Rabajas, the discounts, right? You can take a five euro shirt, take it to the printer, make a QR code and a free QR code generator online, costs nothing. Print that on the back with a clever turn of phrase or just say, you're curious about Barcelona food and giant QR code, have people point at that. And experiment with that, right? And, and that's free traction. You don't have to, you, you know, people think about 
innovation and tech like oh we have we need new distribution models and they they see on linkedin all these mentions of, of new apis and things like that no wonder people's eyes glaze over you know so so it's just about making that mental switch towards simple experimentation one of the i use an example from my own background that in the early 2000s i was leading a lot of multi-day trips uh, venture trips places like nepal pakistan uh, kenya uh, all, all around the world really and they were all traditional trips they were like two weeks maximum three weeks because that was the market everest base camp kilimanjaro a lot of customers a lot of competition uh, a lot of pressure on price on margins and I, I was often speaking to the guests and the guests were often commenting how they would love to spend longer they didn't have longer because they had two weeks off their work, but they had an ambition. They had a drive to spend longer. So I got thinking about that. That I keep speaking to people that would like to immerse themselves in these destinations for a much longer period of time. No technology involved. So I started experimenting with trips that were much longer, four weeks, five weeks, 10 weeks, 100 days. And everybody says you're off your head. There's not a market for anybody taking 50 to 100 days off. Well, there's a massive market for people taking 50 to 100 days off, but there was not one tour operator often offering trips that, that lasted that long, that, that really embedded you in a destination. So basically, we took control of niche, yes, but it was a niche, high-margin market. And we didn't worry about competition because there was no competition. And I basically dropped all my other trips within two years. And we only focused on very long, uh, challenging, total immersive trips, no technology involved, apart from social to, to reach the customers. We just use social to reach the customers. And that was driven, that's where I'm going to with this, is I've always looked at innovation. I'm not great with coming up with technology solutions to innovation. I'm good with technology, but I'm not great at coming up with technology solutions, but I'm good at finding out what the customer wants. And I always start, when I'm thinking about innovation, it's, it's not what I want. It's not what I think. I have to go and find out what the customer thinks, what the customer wants, because they're going to give you hints. They're going to give you direction, and then you can play with it. Yeah, that's true. Uh, and and one before I answer that and sort of try to direct that a little bit, is one point that I want to make for the people listening is that until you leave this industry, you don't know, I mean, I, I fully respect how hard it can be. I've been there, I know, but I know the hard sides of it. But one thing you don't really appreciate until you leave it is how good you have it in the sense of your innovation potential. In the sense that you, you, you in one of the few industries where you have on the whole, I'm not speaking for everyone, just generally speaking, certainly in terms of activities, unless you have you know buses and all that, but let's talk about the food tours and the small operators and all that. You generally have no inventory to take care of. You don't have giant amounts of inventory of stuff to take care of. You have a very manageable overhead in general. And you're one of the few few industries in the whole world where you get paid up front. That was the big one for me when I left the industry, getting used to again to getting paid 30 days, 60 days after you do something. You don't realize how good you have it in this industry where you just take it for granted that people pay you a deposit or, or, or the whole thing up front, positive cash flow. Like that environment, most of the, the other industries would kill for that because it, it'll, it gives you the space to experiment. Getting back to that is that experimental mindset where you can run uh, small experiments. And then going into what you're saying, which is very true, if there's one paradigm, one set of pillars that innovation has been predicated on, again for 10,000 years it's that idea that concept that innovation always starts with the observation of needs and that's something that most corporates even sit against all the time right most innovation still and that's why it fails most of the time it's called innovation theater most innovation fails because they skip that step and they go straight into let us let us, whoever us is, let us come up with something clever, smart, and innovative that we believe the market needs, and then spend money on building that thing, and then test it in the market. 
And more often than not, unless you're very lucky or you're really, really bright, which many of us are, but not quite that bright because the market is dynamic. It changes all the time. Unless you have that observational step first, you're setting yourself up for failure. And this is, you know, this is not new. I keep going back to, to the Neolithic because I'm a history buff and because in this context, it's important because look at the, look at the innovations in the world that have been the most, that have the, been the enduring innovations that have lasted not for a few decades, but for thousands and thousands of years. I always go back to something like, for example, arrowheads, right? The oldest arrowheads that were ever found were about 65,000 years old. Now, how, how does something like that, an arrowhead that's been in, in consistent use for 65,000 years, you name me one other product that we have today that has any reasonable prospect of surviving 65,000 years. You think we'll be dealing with iPhones 65,000 years from now? There are very few items that have that kind of durability. And the reason why, there's one fundamental reason why, it's not tech, because it's a piece of rock. So it's not tech. So what is it? Well, it's the observational side of it. It's the fact that the item in this case that was created, invented, was created because the people who made it observed those needs from a very personal, up-close perspective time and time again. In this case, because they were in the same tribes, they were the same people who had that need. So understanding and observing the needs is key to coming up with new ideas for innovation. And there's one particular kind of need that I always talk about in the context of innovation when I do training and all of that, is the concept of latent needs. Latent, latent meaning hidden. And what, what does that mean, hidden needs? It means that in most cases, people will not tell you what they want because they don't know what they want or, they, or in most cases, because they don't know how to express their desire for that. People always behave differently than if, if you ask them what they want, they'll usually give you a lot of answers, but very few of them will actually be what they need. You only get to the heart of those by observing them. It's observational. You see how they behave, what they do, how they act. And that's where the clues are of how you create a new innovation. Um, so one of the best examples that, that, that I can give, which is not directly from tourism, but I think it's one of the most beautiful uh, examples of this practice we call design thinking, which is just another word for innovation thinking, is, um, you know, in, in, in much of Africa, you have this reality of, of drought, unfortunately. You have people from, from tribes and communities who have to get water every day. And so they have people who have to drag these canisters on their shoulders or on their heads, as they, they still do in Africa. They have to walk for miles and miles to, to wells to fill that up and walk back to the community. And so that's heavy. It's bad for the neck. It's, it's, you know, it's hot. It's not good. So what did someone come up with, which is a company called Hippo, Hippo Roller in South Africa? Just by observing what happens, they thought, like, let's just see how what actually physically happens in those communities. And they came up with something called the Hippo Roller. And the Hippo Roller is nothing but there's no tech involved. There's no chips, there's no blockchain, there's no AI, right? There's certainly no metaverse involved. It's just a barrel. It's a barrel with a, with a, with a handle on it that you can just push and roll. And that's it. And in doing that, I, I urge people to have a look at Hippo Roller. I'm not affiliated in any way. I just really love the example. And just by doing that, these people from these communities can now roll their barrel very easily to the well, fill it up much higher volume and roll it back. And you only, they, those people will never tell you they need that. That's the point here. Never will they come to you and say, I wish I had a rolling barrel to take away from the strain of having to carry these things. It doesn't happen. You only get that through observation. And that's yeah. what the point that, is here. That reminds me of the customer, the guest, rarely buys what the business thinks it's selling to them. Yeah, the perception in the guest head is often different from what the business thinks it's selling. One one of the mistakes, or one of the many mistakes I made when I was building tour operations, regards innovation, is I spent a long time 
going back to my best customers, looking to innovate on my best customers. It was only when I went further down my customer list into customers who weren't my best customers, customers who were coming just once, customers who weren't really that engaged with us. Once I started speaking to them in depth, we were able to create a lot more new channels, new new businesses, new products by getting away from what, for well over a couple of years, we thought we have to really embed ourselves with the best customers to come up with new new products, new channels, new, new innovation. Whereas the reality, the gold was hidden in not our best customers. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. And, and you only get that through through really obs observing and not jumping to conclusions. Uh, I don't know if you've ever seen, I'm sure it's done the rounds a few times about this, uh, this realization that they had in, in World War II, um, you know, about, about planes getting shot at. And, and planes would come back to RAF planes and allied planes. Yeah. They'd come back with, with, with the edge of the wings riddled with bullet holes, you know, just absolutely riddled. And and then the, the the pieces closest to the to the wing were actually completely unspoiled. There were no holes in them. So they, they made the decision like, oh, clearly we need to reinforce the outside of the wings, right? To to protect the planes. But then someone remarked that, and they finally figured out that that's the wrong way of thinking. That's the obvious way of thinking. It's like, yeah. wow, the outside of the plane are riddled with bullet holes, and the inside close to the cockpit are fine. So clearly we must reinforce the rest of the wing. Actually, it was the opposite when they started thinking about it, that the planes who never made it back were the ones that were shot close to the cockpit. Yep. Well, yes, there was one reason why you never saw bullet holes there, because the only ones that made it back were the ones that were shot in the outside of the wing. The ones who were shot in the inside, they never made it back in the first yep. So they had to reinforce completely the opposite of what they thought they had to reinforce. And that's a beautiful metaphor of that kind of thinking, where you have to, you know, not not make assumptions. Just let the, you know, let let the data, and that that's part of this. As I always explain, this observational quality is is not subjective. It really is. It's much more data driven than people think. Is let let the data guide you towards good decision making. And observing is what if, what if. It's nothing more than collecting data, right? Yeah. One of the questions I get when I'm speaking with operators a lot is normally operators, not new operators, because they're excited, they've come up with a new experience of the new product, and they're, they're in it. It's normally operators have been operating for a reasonable period of time. They're bedded in with what they're doing. And it's they're sorry in a, how do I come up with a new idea? They're under pressure. They can see something happening in the business. They can feel it. It's in their gut. They're under pressure for margins. They're under pressure for competition. They're under pressure from the chaos that's going on in the world. Things are not quite right. And they, they feel this pressure to come up with new ideas, but they're struggling to come up with new ideas. Now, I have some views on this, which we can I'll mouth off later, but how, how, how should they come up with new ideas, especially the ones who are feeling under pressure at the moment? Well, you, you come up with ideas by, by letting the, 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 the quote-unquote data guide you towards new ideas. I mean, there is this principle in, in, in innovation and design thinking. Design thinking is, is, a, is a process, a methodology. It's just a word, right? It's just a phrase. But what it implies is that there is a form of structure to innovation that says that you go from what is called empathizing. And empathizing in this case means observing collecting data it doesn't mean personal empathy where i you know try to feel try to see how pete's feeling today and try to relate that's personal empathy that's important right that's a baseline we're going to assume that none of us here are sociopaths but it's not that kind of empathy we're talking about organizational empathy which is you empathize you collect data which is observation see like keep an eye instead of running your tours as some kind of run-of-the-mill road repeat thing you 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 observe every act that people take where they go to the bathroom how long they stop when their eyes frown you know when they seem unexpectedly delighted you keep a record of all of that right you collect data empathize and then the next stage is ideate ideate is coming up with ideas and it's very difficult to do that without any data to test it again that's the problem is that anyone can come up with an idea 
But as the startup world knows, uh, and as the venture capital world will tell you, an idea in itself is worthless. Uh, a good idea has no value whatsoever, which usually makes people go, oh, no, but I have so many great ideas. An idea is worthless unless it's manifest, unless it's it turned into a manifest solution. So you start with the, the empathy side, data collection, then ideation. And then the next step is experimentation. So it's always empathize, ideate, experiment. And experiment means, for example, I went through this in China. I used to take people up to the Great Wall and we went hiking. And so I noticed that when we went hiking there, that people would love to take breaks and they love to take breaks on the, on top of the watchtowers, the higher points of the, of the Great Wall. So I saw that. So so I, I took note of that, a mental note, like, okay, so, so the break is, is, a, is an important component, clearly, of the hike, right? We think of hiking as the hike is the important part. That's why it's called hiking. But I started realizing that the break was actually a very important component of that. So one day I decided, like, let's, let's leverage the break. And so I took, along with my, my colleague, my, my support guide, we took some stuff. We took a, a tent and we took binoculars and a simple camping uh, set and some catering that we brought in from a nearby hotel. And I thought, like, let's turn the break into an experience of it in its own right. And so we set up these mini campsites on top of the Great Wall uh, with, with pre-recorded, I sort of had pre-recorded history of the Mongol invasion, all of that, with a soundtrack, very sort of Lord of the Ringsy. And so what it turned out to become is that actually the hike became a secondary event in those experiences. In fact, nobody spoke about the hike afterwards anymore. They all spoke about the break. And so I realized that what I needed to sell was sort of the, you know, the the the, the inverse space again, the, the opposite of what you try to see. You know, not, not the sculpture, but the but the components that you take away to build the sculpture is where the magic was. And so that became the experience. And, yeah. and that's a good example of that. Myself, because I struggled with new ideas myself, my kind of solution was I've literally got dozens and dozens of these lying about, just little black books I had in my pocket all the time. And I, and I became a thief. Okay, and I became a thief of ideas. So as I was traveling around the world, and it, normally I was looking outside of tour operators. Some of the books are full of stuff from other tour operators, but normally I was looking at other businesses, other sectors, just sitting at a cafe, watching the world go by, filling little books with ideas that I'm basically stealing from what is already happening. And then when I got back to base, I'd go through the ideas and say, how can I use that idea in my business? Now, the vast majority of them would get stroke, stroked out, interesting, but I couldn't see how I could use it. But that, for someone who struggled with coming up with new innovative ideas, I basically became a thief of ideas from other sectors and other other industries, and and that and that's the best way of doing it. There's two there's two kinds of innovation really, and and one is one is one is hard. There's nothing like there's nothing easy in this world. We all know that. Nothing easy in life. But one is hard, and the other one is is nigh on impossible. And there's two strands of innovation, and mostly people are focusing on the on the on the near impossible one. There's proactive and reactive innovation. Reactive innovation means you take something that already exists in some form or another in your industry or any other industry, and you convert it or you put it together with another item or component or idea, and you create a new way of doing something. That's a reactive innovation. You're responding to something that's already out there. The much more difficult one is, is proactive innovation. Proactive innovation being you basically have to conjure something out of thin air. You're creating something that hasn't existed before. And that is actually not called innovation. It's called invention. That's the difference between invention and innovation. And inventing stuff is really, insert profanity, hard. Yeah. Inventing is really, really hard. Just ask any of them. You take the brightest people who've ever lived. At least we tend to agree by consensus. Take Darwin. Take... Tesla, you know, take uh, any of them, take Einstein, take Da Vinci way back. And none of them just went one day like, oh, here we go, boom, I'm done. All of that was the, was, was the, the, the end goal 
of their life's work. You know, Edison famously with his 10,000 failures and all that. And that's someone as bright as Edison. Yeah. Most of us, you and I included, are no match for Edison. I think we'd all agree on that. Yeah, no, that, that reminds me, when I've gone for completely blue sky, completely new stuff, the only thing that's really come out that, that's looked fantastic was the spreadsheets. The spreadsheets looked fantastic, but everything else was just a mess. <laughs> it just didn't work. But on the spreadsheet, it looked like it, it, looked like it was going to work. Yeah, and, and, and you, you just, people have to get off this two ideas. Two ideas, one is that technology drives innovation or that all innovation is predicated on technology and that innovation means coming up with something completely new that hasn't been done before. That's not innovation, it's invention. And it's damn hard. It's really, I'm not, I've been in this for, for a very long time, practically sort of in a tactile on the ground way, running companies and all that but also now more from an educational perspective. And I know how hard it is to invent something. So don't try, don't, you know, unless you think you're a Musk or a, even Elon Musk didn't invent most of the stuff he's dealing with, right? That, that's not what he did. He will yeah. readily, I'm sure, admit that this is really hard. So don't try to invent and don't base everything on the idea that you have to use technology. Like just take, existing concepts and make them better if you want to be competitive and going forward like the best metaphor that i always keep in mind is that is that that idea that if if if, if i went hiking with you with with beat time and we went hi hiking in, in the woods and suddenly we were set upon by a giant bear that started chasing us then what i need to do is i do not need to outrun the bear i need to outrun pete that's what i need to do so that's a that's a lower bar than outrunning the bear, which is just plain stupid because I can't. So, so that's the same thing. It's like trying to outrun the bear is inventing something new that is predicated on new technology, which is what we see today. Like everyone going, I'm going to take a blockchain or AI, insert your favorite uh, buzzword here. I'm going to take an AI or a metaverse or a blockchain and then do something to beat my competition well good luck to you <laughs> you know yep. it doesn't work that way so build a better mousetrap and and doing that again in this industry is in a way easier than any other industry because you have upfront cash flow you have a low barrier for experimentation and if you start looking around and, and, and adapting that mindset you suddenly start seeing incredible opportunity everywhere for, for leveraging the world around you to do things differently and and get a you know get ahead in the game. I, I want to give a few examples of that when we move forward of, of what people can do that will probably blow their minds like wow we never thought of that. And it's not about you know investment and massive spending a year building a new product. Please. Yeah no for sure. One of the things when I've been consulting with tour operators and and I know where this comes from. This comes from passion and the, the desire to create the perfect experience and the perfect tour for guests. Uh, and they go into such detail in the creation of a new experience. Uh, when I say detail, I've worked with operators who have spent a year, in one case, two years, developing a new tour and a new experience for operators, uh, for, for their guests. And in this fast-moving world, I just don't believe you have the time or ability or broadband to, to be able to do that. So I kind of work with a concept of good enough. It's like, do it fast, get it out there into the market, find out if it's getting traction. And if it is, then iterate, iterate, iterate. If it isn't getting any traction, have a little tweak. And if it isn't getting any traction at all, get, get, it away, get out there. Don't, and I understand why operators do it because they're passionate about the experience and the product. But spending months and months developing something that you don't know if the customer really, really wants, to me is a, and we have all the tools today to find out really, really quickly whether this is a go or whether it's not. And this is about saving not just money, but a huge amount of time to, to be able to deliver new experiences and new products. Yeah, and, and let's, you know, let, let's just say it like it is. I mean, we, both of us have a tradition of just speaking our minds. 
and, and let's say like it is in, in many cases there's, there's a lot of ego involved as well where people people fall in love with the solution rather than fall in love with the problem and that yeah. that is a problem you have to fall in love with the problem not with the solution because if you if you if you trying to sell it because you're passionate about the product then you're treading a very dangerous path because it's not you who has to fall in love with the product it's your customer who has to fall in love with the product that seems so obvious and yet it is the reason why you know 50 60 70 percent of businesses maybe not fail but you get stuck in sort of a you know in, in eternal purgatory of, of non non-profitability or, or just about making it it's not you who has to fall in love with the product it's your customer and the best way of testing that is by serving the customer a lot of different dishes and i use the word dishes very deliberately because that's what you see in a lot of successful restaurants you know i was watching a tv series about you know uh, master not master chef whatever some some top chef um uh very beautiful documentary on netflix anyway a lot of these restaurants are their success is predicated on the fact that they they don't serve the same thing over and over. They experiment all the time. They'll serve new dishes, and then the chef is looking from the kitchen to see what happens in the dining hall. Right? They actually read the reactions of the faces of people and then tweak accordingly. And it's only the ones who fall in love with their own product, who stubbornly sort of insist that they have the right uh, dish and it needs to be served that way. Those are those are the ones that get chewed out by Gordon Ramsay uh, you know, for, for for violating the first principle of customer service, which is you build it for them. So you have the freedom to experiment and come up with new new ideas, both in the in the product, but also in the marketing of the product, in how to attract eyeballs. There too, we need to get to to a much more experimental mindset because everyone, you know, I mean, you do ads and stuff like that, and everyone runs the same ads on the same looking Instagram campaigns to the same audience. And so you're, you're completely, 90% of your, your ad budget is effectively blown from the get-go because you're fishing in the exact same overfished ponds while there are other ponds that are full of fish that you're just not even, you, you've turned your back on. That, that's, that's not a good way of getting there. And it's, again, that experimental mindset. Yeah. I've, I've some of the entrepreneurs uh, on this listening in, but well, I've heard me mention this before. But I went, I spent a lot of money on Facebook ads when Facebook first came along, when went into an ad model to learn the system. And in combination of PPC and Facebook, we did a lot of, lot of marketing of products that did not exist, experiences that did not exist. We'd have five to 10 experiences out there testing the market that just didn't exist. We hadn't built the things. And, and, when we did the analysis of it, the money, the time it was saving us was eye-watering, absolutely eye-watering, because we were rapidly finding what the market wanted, and we'd spent some money finding out what the market hadn't wanted, but compared with developing that trip or developing that tour and then going into the bun fight of spending money on it, and we're talking months, if not years, and a whole painful journey, we got it down to a quick fire get the ads out there, get the iterations of the ads out there. Are they working? Are they not? When we had the ones that worked, we doubled down, doubled down, doubled down, doubled down on them. And it became an incredibly cheap way of acquiring clients compared with the way we were, we were doing it previously. And we only used two routes. We only used PPC and Facebook ads. Yeah, uh, and, and I mean, nothing, nothing against ads. I mean, it, it works and, and you find an experimental way of doing it. But there are other... It's just about that experimental mindset. There are other ways, if you're a small operator, to attract eyeballs. And, and it's not always about, you know, throwing money at it. It's, you know, you should, in, in this day and age, with what is happening, what is coming, you know, we already know, I presume that you, you might agree with that. I don't know, you tell me. But, I, you know, we're sort of presuming that next year is going to be quite difficult. The winter period might be quite difficult. Because even though we're celebrating the great reopening of tourism, things are going well, there is still, you know, a problem with, you know, if, if, if you don't get past next winter, then what's your 2023 going to look like? You know, ad budgets are going to have to increase. A lot of the big operators are making a lot of money 
So they, they're replenishing their coffers to drive up ad budgets, which means you're going to be bidding against, as it was before, you're going to be outbid by just about everyone. So, so you have to find other sort of guerrilla tactics to, 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 to fight in this, in, in this battle that is not just coming, but it's going to continue. It's not going to stop. And so you have to, you know, bring technology into it a little bit. If, if you're smart about this, I am convinced because I've been through it myself that you can, you can, and that should be sort of the aim in, in my estimation. You should be able to reduce the amount of time you spent on your business through smart use of technology. You should be able to reduce your time overhead by 20% while increasing your margins to, if you're not there already, at least 20%. But if, if you, if, if you can't get there, in that delta is sort of the, the, the difference between success and, and, and just about making it or just being gone the next time something bad happens geopolitically. Like find a way to reduce your overhead in time and cost by 20% and get your margins up to at least 20%. If you can do that, you're in the sweet spot. You're in the zone. That's where I always aim to be. And I, I've got consistently. And then you're, you're humming along because suddenly you have more time. You've got 20% of your time back, which means you have more time for that all important aspect, which is experimentation with new, new ideas, new tools, rapid iteration. Most of the people don't have the time for the experimentation. That's a big problem, right? We're running up to the, you know, up to the eyeballs in, in, in tours right now, just to survive the next downturn. You don't have time for experimentation. Well, that's just a, a feast of famine paradigm, and that never works in any business, right? Certainly, the the market at the moment, or tour tour community at the moment, everyone is focused on execution at the moment. That is just a given. Everyone, the big guys, the medium sized guys, the the small guys and girls who are just running a one person operation or a two three person operation, everyone is focused on execution because everyone's trying to get cash in to address balance sheets from we know what happened before, slight worries about what's coming in the winter. So everyone's focused on execution. And I totally get that. Done it myself for years, just focused on execution. But at some point, if you're going to cope with all of these challenges, I do really want the community to really try and manage their diary so they can spare some time in their life for innovation. Like execute, execute, execute. That's what drives the cash flow. That's what gets the business in. But you can become, you've heard me say it before, you become busy fools, right? You can get more customers. You can get a bigger business. You can get more staff. But is the business working to its optimum? Is the business making you more net-net profit? If it isn't, you're becoming a busy fool. And the only way out this in this crazy market that we're in in this crazy world at the moment is by doing things differently. It's not by keep doing the same things just faster and faster and faster. That will work for a very small amount of businesses, normally scaled businesses, which 95% of our community is not scaled to that size. Therefore, the way we will become, which is a mantra of more profitable operators, is by finding this innovation within all of our businesses. And it does, it does exist there. It just needs time to be dedicated to finding that, that innovation that we can deliver to the guests. Yeah, and it's it's possible, right? Otherwise, you get stuck in that linear path where, like you said, it's it's a completely forty-five degree angled line up. Yes, you're doing better, but you need to hire more staff, and your costs go up, and your net profit is therefore not higher. So you're trying to scale it further, but then you need more staff, and and then of course the stakes just go up. Your your net profit is 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 not going up necessarily or marginally, but the stakes go up because the next downturn you might have to lay off. A lot more people or, or you you stuck with a much higher overhead and that's frightening right and that that's just not good for your heart you stay stay healthy through all this so you don't you don't need hockey stick growth but at least your the curve should be bending ever so slightly right to to, to make it healthy and world work worthwhile even even towards a potential acquisition at some point if you want to exit it you know make make that curve slightly bend upwards because that's attractive to a potential buyer it means you figured out the business and again innovation for example what i did and I'm, I'm of course have to be sensible about this but i'm all for localized employment make sure local community benefits 
but you have to decide where and when. One of the things I did is I figured out these ways of attracting eyeballs for free, which I want to give an example of, like a hack that most people will be unaware of that did really well for me, even back in the day. And so using slightly, slightly towards tech, but in the most simple way. And then also, for example, what I did is I hired a virtual assistant. You have places like the Philippines where I had a, I had a virtual assistant, which I paid by their market standards overpaid. Right. In, in full transparency, I paid 600 euros a month. And that is that was not quite full time. It was about 30 hours a week. And that was way above the market standard. So I wasn't trying to exploit anyone. This was in the north of the Philippines, a girl who was eminently uh, uh, capable, very smart girl. And so that that salary went a long way where she was. Right. That was like three times or four times. That was the equivalent of making 3000 euros net in Europe, which is not bad. Um, and so I taught her how to use these hacks and she did it for me. So that's that went a long way towards reducing my time on Mandarin journeys, nuts and, nuts and bolts of keeping it running and towards experimentation. And, and then you, you reach at some point, you reach kind of escape velocity where that becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. Because what I learned is that you know, it's never you never you're never stuck in a in a circle. Never. It's it's always a spiral. The only question is: Is the spiral going up, or is it going down? Yeah. That's why I learned it's never lateral. It's never flat. It's either ever so gently or very quickly spiraling down, or ever so gently or quickly spiraling up. And you have to choose which path you want to be on. And and that to get up to that upper path, the spiral up. That's where innovation is really important. And, and, and again, it's just about smart thinking. So, Mark, just to lead up to finishing this up, you mentioned some hacks or some hints or some tools that our community could use to spur some innovation, maybe save them some time to free up that time to be able to innovate in their own business. Could you just cover off some of the things you were, you were yeah, hinting definitely. at? So I want to I want to give a few examples from the more experimental to the to the more very practical and implementable. Although all of them are easy to implement. So one of the hacks I did uh, a long time ago, I, I I did it first in China, uh, and then I I did it very briefly here in Barcelona as well. Is um, I bought one of these things. This this is a well you can't see it because of the green screen. Kind of see it. It's a little it's a little router, an internet router. So basically what I did is I, I just connected a a, a battery to it, you know, like these USB batteries. And this little router allows you to also install um, very simply uh, a welcome page for shared Wi-Fi. You know, the way you do it when you go to a restaurant or an airport is social Wi-Fi, right? Where you, you, you connect to the Wi-Fi and then it shows you a login page. You have to use your Facebook or email address, whatever to connect. So it was that sort of idea, except I did it on this device. I put in, it takes a SIM card. I got an unlimited 4G SIM, which cost me about 40 euros a month, which I only did for a while. And I took this thing. I created a custom landing page, very simple, drag and drop. There was no coding, no nothing. And it had um, the company of, uh, it was a real estate company. My wife is setting up her own real estate business. I wanted to drive some eyeballs away. So just plug that in. I took that to the airport and started broadcasting a Wi-Fi signal, free Wi-Fi, so people could connect to it and use it to, to check their email and all of that. But the first thing they saw was her landing page. So they could leave their email address or connect through Facebook. And so she had this social Wi-Fi that was highly portable. But you can do this anywhere. So where I would use it in the in the tourist business is get one of these devices, go to socialwifi.com or any of the providers, you can install this and then take it with a battery pack. It's tiny, you can just drop it in a bag and go sit next to the cruise terminal or the airport arrivals hall or in the lobby of, of the top five-star hotel and have people connect and do a little city guide in there or just a, a welcome page. And you're collecting not just you know anonymous Facebook eyeballs of which you don't know the relevance, you're connecting people you're, you're aggregating people in the destination, most of which are likely to be tourists 
So you're at the source of collecting data. And that, that that's aside from the cost of this, which is, you know, 30 bucks and the battery pack, which is another 20 or something. And then the, the 4G SIM card, that was, I mean, that was just about the cheapest hack you could do for collecting uh, highly relevant, uh, you know, customer information. So that was one, yep. one thing I did, and that works really well. So you can actually still implement that. Campsites, you can take it into central London, go have a coffee, drop that thing where there's a lot of people, people connect to your Wi-Fi and you're collecting leads. You know, go do it in Canary Wharf where all the bankers are and start selling luxury holidays. That's what I would do in that high margin sort of environment. So that's one of them. The other one that, but I have to put this on the screen. I don't know if I can. Um, can I share my screen somehow? Yeah. Yep. Let me share my screen. Uh, just one second. Okay. Okay. You can probably see my uh, Google Maps. Yeah. Okay. So I think we can all agree that Google Maps is a resource that is used by a lot of people and a lot of people who are traveling. That makes that's perfect logical sense, right? It's Google Maps. People who are traveling use this. One of the things that you can do when you have a Google account, you can actually become a contributor, right? You can become a contributor by leaving reviews, which is a nice thing to do, but you can also add photos, images to Google. And the, the good quality images, they start getting a lot of traction. But what else you can do, so that's a good way. First of all, what you do is you start adding images, but in the image, you make sure that you are visible. If you're a food tour, as you start taking pictures, you're a food tour in Barcelona, you make sure that you are in that picture with a QR code on your shirt or your website or your hashtag of Instagram. You put yourself visibly in the in the image, not, not obstructing it because then don't get banned, but be sensible about this. But it's perfectly fine and rational to be in the picture yourself with your T-shirt on saying food tours in Barcelona and take pictures, compelling pictures, good shots at compelling locations and add them to Google. That's one thing that you can do, start driving a lot of eyeballs. You can take it a step further. What I did for the... Um, that same real estate initiative uh, for my wife, which later she joined another business and integrated that. So it's now defunct, but it worked very well. Is I got one of these. You can't see that. But this is a, a relatively cheap panoramic camera. It cost me 400 euros. Nowadays, you can find them for 300. And you just pop this in the middle of the street. You use your phone and you take a snap and it stitches it together and makes a panoramic image. So I did that. And for example, let me show you um, here in your contributions. You can see that there. And so I went to photos, and these are pictures that I uploaded. And some of them, you can start seeing the numbers that I'm getting. And remember, this is free, right? There's no charge for this. So I started adding, you start seeing the numbers that I'm getting. Now, let me take you to this one. This, is, this one I took in, in Alicante, which is a a nice, um, nice city on the Costa Blanca, very popular with tourists. And then you have the Rambla, which is the Rambla is the, the promenade, basically. And so I, I put this um, tripod there. I took a three uh, panoramic picture. And you can see that the, the teller is at the moment at 62,000, give or take 63,000 visits. Now, Google gives preference to panoramic images. They get featured. That's why the numbers are so high. But the kicker is, when you open this image, you can see that. What you can do is you can stitch something into the panoramic image. So people start looking around. And you can do this more overtly than I did. I wanted to stay a little bit discreet. But when people are looking around, have a look at the floor. See this? That's the logo and the branding of that real estate business. It's actually stitched into the fabric, the surroundings of the panoramic image on a main tourist site in Spain that has now been seen by 63,000 people. Now, I ask you the question, what would be the cost of this if you were to try to, to do this in the real world? Have a giant sticker that's viewed by 63,000 people stuck 
to the floor of one of the, the biggest tourist attractions in one city, right? And you you can you can do that. That's that that cost me very little. It cost me the, the cost of this panoramic camera and then just going there and taking pictures. If you're out and about all the time anyway, and you carry one of these, you can do this right on repeat all the time. And you can put this on Google and guaranteed it will be seen by thousands and thousands and thousands of people, which is again a highly relevant audience because guaranteed these are people who are interested in travel or they wouldn't be on Google Maps. Maybe they're not all seeking your product, but for brand awareness, this is a it's a, it's like a magic hack, right? It's free. Yeah, to give the community some hints on this, uh, I haven't spoke to this guy since the pandemic, but pre-pandemic, I know a guy was using this hack at scale in Glasgow. And this is going back to 2020. He had 70 million views on his photo collection on Google just by doing Glasgow, one destination, 70 million views. So this is a free hack uh, that a little bit of effort to go into this and you're going to get a lot of traffic for free. Yeah, I mean, how, how, how much would it cost you somewhere else? And Google Maps is highly, highly relevant. See, here's another picture with 50,000 views, you know, some of them 3,000 views. But but I, I just did the same thing, you know, just stick uh, stick your, um, you can see my camera there. You see part of it standing there. So, and, and you can put yourself in the frame, which is perfectly reasonable. You can put yourself in the frame with your shirt. You can be holding a plate of food, like be creative. And, and that is innovation. And yes, it uses technology, it leverages technology, but it's not about technology, you know? There's no blockchain involved, no nothing. It's just me and a car and some some intrepid uh, driving around the coast and, and, and putting this thing on, on the ground. If I had to start all over in tours and activities or in travel, I'd be doing this all over the place to get to the kind of numbers that you that you said, like in the millions, in the tens of millions. Try and do that anywhere else. And, and Google Maps are about to become a lot, lot. They're already incredibly important, but with Google moving a lot of their product onto Google Maps, we are going to see bookings of activity. We are already seeing bookings of attractions. We're going to see bookings of activities on Google Maps. So this this has become more important, not less important. It is Google's. They're trying to make Google Maps their super super app. Yeah, I mean it's in, in the top ten most visited websites in the world. Or the most visited apps in the world. So it's not a no, it's not a trivial thing, this Google Maps thing. It, it is you can you can run and scale an entire business just on that. And it costs you at the moment nothing. Like how many opportunities like that do you have? Especially again in, in the tourist field. There's you know, there's not that many industries that can leverage Google Maps in this way. You know, you, you could, even if you're a library or something, you can do now internal views, which is another thing. Even if you have an internal office space or something that is that is not uh, based exterior, Google allows you now to do inside views as well. So people can get off the virtual street and into your surrounding. Leverage this, please. But again, you're not going to be able to do this unless you have the time. And to have the time, you're going to have to innovate your way out of that by using technology intelligently, use a VA, spend the five or 600 euros on getting a virtual assistant. They will help you offload a lot of stuff. In addition to that, use technology, simple technology like Zapier. I don't want to get off on a technology tangent here, but you have tools like Zapier uh, where you can automate simple things and anyone can use it. It's just a, basically a system that says, if this happens, then do that. If I get a, a mention on Facebook, then automatically uh, post a, a reply or a recommendation or whatever it is. You can automate a lot of things. The goal should be, once again, because it's realistic, I know that, reclaim 20% of your time. That's the goal. Reclaim 20% of your time and make sure you operate at at least a 20% margin. If you can do those things in combination, you're off to the races. Right? It, the world's your oyster. Okay, I would like very much to thank Mark for all his hints and help here. Remember what our purpose is, guys and girls. We want to make the community more profitable. We're all about getting the tour operator, which is a small business in the majority, 
a more profitable operator. We're about to go into some challenging times, I believe, and many other people believe. So it's all about innovation on what you're doing. Let's innovate on our experiences. Don't let's become busy fools just chasing more and more customers. Let's make sure what we're doing is delivering at the correct profit margins to help you, to give you that spare headroom in your business, to give you time to really enjoy being an operator and don't just be a busy fool. Thanks very much, Mark. That was fantastic. My pleasure. Thank you, Pete, and everyone.